Welcome back. I'm Pierre Daly, and this is Raise Your Average. Adam Butler, CIO at Resolve Asset Management, is my co-host. Adam, great to see you. Fantastic to be back. New uh, new season, ready to rev it up. Got a great lineup yeah. today, Pierre. Absolutely. In in today's episode, we have the privilege of hosting two esteemed figures from Wisdom Tree, a powerhouse in the investment industry. Jeremy Schwartz and Jeff Winiger are here. Jeremy is global CIO at Wisdom Tree. He leads the charge in creating innovative equity indexes, cutting edge quantitative active strategies and comprehensive multi-asset model portfolios. With his expertise, he has continuously navigated the intricate world of finance since joining the firm in May 2005, sculpting the direction of Wisdom Tree's investment strategy. Alongside Jeremy, we're joined by Jeff Weniger, head of equity strategy at Wisdom Tree. With a keen eye on the firm's stock market outlook, Jeff artfully assesses the macro and fundamental trends shaping our financial landscape. His depth of experience is further enriched by his time as director and senior strategist at BMO Global Asset Management, where he played an instrumental role from 2006 to 2017. Jeremy and Jeff are two extraordinary thought leaders in the investment realm, and they are here to share their insights, experiences, and outlook with you. While the music's playing, Hit that subscribe button, ring that bell so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And please leave us your comments. That helps others like you find us. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Jeremy, Jeff, welcome, and thank you so much for accepting our invitation. It's terrific to have you both here. Absolutely, Thanks. our pleasure. Thanks for having us, Pierre. Adam, great to be with you. Yeah, you guys too. Yeah, so, so I mean, obviously um, the natural place yeah. to start here is Jackson Hole, folks. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, maybe who wants to give a recap of, um, I mean, have you spoken to Professor Siegel yet? Has he given you his briefing on uh, his interpretation of what's, what um, Jay Powell articulated in his speech and, uh, and some of the other research that was presented. Um, if so, maybe Jeremy, go ahead and fill us in. Yeah, I, I, we've been pretty harsh critics of uh, the Fed and saying, you know, you know, we do some of our own calculations on inflation and, and our numbers when we substitute real-time data for housing uh, instead of the shelter inflation that shows 7.8%, we have real-time housing data from Case Schiller and from Zillow Rent and you know, our numbers show zero and a half headline and one and a half core. So like very different than the official BLS statistics. And so we've been saying, hey, they've been too tight, too hoggish. Um, now, I'd say we've been less critical now. We're probably, you know, most in, in, in some sense, they're recognizing there's risks for the first time saying, hey, maybe we've got to very carefully monitor our future rate hikes. We would say, you know, again, sort of critiquing Powell a little bit on his speech. He didn't talk about what's driving the recent growth being productivity. Last year was disaster for productivity. This year, productivity is coming back in a big way. And he didn't comment on that at all in the speech. And that should be less inflationary. So it's like worrying about sort of a, we have too much demand creating too much inflation pressures. It wasn't recognizing that so much this recent economic growth is this sort of productivity number, but uh, he he was sort of balanced and we're, we're pretty close to the end. I think we could be at the end, although the market's starting to price in still a November hike. 
it's very possible that you don't get that November hike. Uh, and, and, you know, even if you get another 25, 50 basis points, we're very close to the end of the cycle. And uh, you, you are hearing more of that downside risk discussion from this. So I think that we are, we are bashing them less than we were before. Yeah, Jeff, you've been pretty vocal about your position that um, these rate hikes, given both the pace that they mm -hmm. were enacted and the magnitude um, of the change that we've seen over the last year and a half or so, um, should cause some especially interest-sensitive sectors of the economy to, to really grind to a halt, right? Um, you, I know you focus quite a bit on housing, but I know there's other dimensions to your research. What was your takeaway from, um, from Jackson Hole in the context of your focus over the past six to nine months? Yeah, and, and grinding to a halt, I, it's, it's actually not that outlandish to describe that as, as, as what could occur in certain pockets, anything that's highly rate-sensitive namely housing, that has been an issue mm -hmm. um, on my mind for some time. Um, it's as if they're just looking at coincident indicators or denying what, what Jeremy's pointing out with the housing data, if you're at least considering that you might have maybe one or 2% year-over-year home price appreciation, that the rent data is capturing for example, people renting out four and five bedroom homes because they're locked in at 3% mortgages and don't wanna leave that. And that's skewing the rental data higher than what is actually the situation in the United States, which is for all intents and purposes, flat or negative rents. Um, the other thing, I'm not quite sure why the Fed isn't giving a hat tip to it. Uh, we certainly are, is Look at the major economies, whether you're in the G7 or whether you're in the, in the emerging world. These PPIs are splashing red ink all over the place. Um, you have, I mean, everybody's PPI chart, uh, it's mirror image here on camera, but in my mind, every PPI mm -hmm. chart looks like that. You had German PPI. We were talking about this on one of the wisdom tree calls earlier today. When Natty Gas was doing what Natty Gas was doing in response to the Ukrainian situation, German PPI was plus 46% year over year. Maybe it's 47, 48. Who even remembers? It's now red, negative, negative PPI. And this is an economy that is an absolute export powerhouse. It exports materially more volume for, for context than the Japanese, for example. German PPI is red, is red. Chinese PPI is red. Punk PPI out of the U.S., Jeremy, I don't know if it's so punk out of Japan. It's a three-handle on year-over-year PPI over there. But we need to respect as an economy the fact that you get, an, you get action A on a PPI number, major PPIs, and action B is six or 12 months later, it will filter into someone's CPI. Germans, the Chinese, Japanese, the U.S., to some extent the South Koreans as well, with here and there some red ink. We got a benign 2024 inflation environment from a consumer level as a distinct possibility. I think maybe that's, people feel like it's a consensus, but I don't know that they're fully ready to embrace it. We still hear a lot of people harping on a 1970-style stagflation. That could happen, but not near term. So, um, what, I mean, obviously Powell and his, and his staff are not, are not blind, right? They're, I mean, they've, they've said on several occasions, they've, um, 
<laughs> they they they're they're data dependent, right? They're constantly assessing the current environment and um, and using their best models in the context of their most up to date data that they trust, presumably, to, um, to to render policy choices. So, I mean, let's let's give Powell and his team um, the benefit of the doubt for the second. What do you think he is seeing that is causing him to remain um, more neutral and I think relative to, you know, what you're seeing, pretty hawkish. Well, there's the forward-looking data and there's, you know, the actual headline numbers that come out of the BLS. And so if if he sticks to the script of it's got to be the headline BLS numbers or the core PC numbers, stuff that they've talked about versus what's going to look like six months from now, that's one critical thing is how much has to be an official number they've seen or where do they see it going, right? So I think there's that element of real-time numbers versus forward-looking numbers and and biases in those official statistics. So that's one critical issue. But he doesn't want to be, you know, he starts off every press conference with we recognize the hardships inflation's putting on people, which is why he's so focused on really bringing that down. And so I, you understand in, in some ways, you know, and he hasn't really created any negative repercussions besides for these bank blowups. You haven't seen people lose their jobs in a big way. You know, he, you could say he's, I, we did expect actually, if you called me surprised on how he's navigated, I would have expected more of a rise in unemployment and more pain but it's just nobody's felt the pain. You know, the people refinance at low rates and the companies haven't had to extend. The only people right. who have faced pain, if you had to raise capital and you're an unprofitable company trying to raise capital now, that's a really challenging situation. You know, if you're trying to sell your company, the multiples are coming down in the private markets. But in the public markets, we've been actually, you know, we've navigated fine, right? In in many ways, after <laughs> the sell-off last year, we're back. And... Uh, and 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 it's really, you really have skated through, but it, it, I do think it comes back to that official headline. He wants to see it at two percent, and that's where you risk. He does risk doing it too much because he's waiting for right. that official number to get back to two percent. Versus, hey, six months from now you might be okay, and you know you you're, you're biased by a certain part of that number that's really biasing it up. You know, yeah, so they're they're, they're, okay. they're afraid of under underdoing it. Right, I mean if that's the correct word. They're afraid of undershooting instead of they're they're more they're more afraid of undershooting than overshooting. I I have to tell you it it took a lot of guts for whatever policy mistake they may be making, and I think that they that they are. It took a lot of guts to roll into town after SVB went under and hike rates. Um, and it's not just SVB; it's Signature, and they had to roll up Credit Suisse for crying out loud. I mean. Adam, I want you to imagine, Adam, you're at, you're at the BOJ, you're at the ECB, you're at the Swiss National Bank, you're anywhere, and you're in charge, and you just watched a couple of American banks go under, and you followed through into the spring and summer with on-net policy tightening. Now, some of them did, some of them didn't. I threw the BOJ in there. They didn't. Well, maybe they did a little bit as they expanded out yield curve control. Mm -hmm. But the fact that here we are in August and we're talking about, I don't know, you know, one more hike, two more hikes, and we have rear view mirror, a handful of regionals that went under less than six months ago, I thought was a gutsy move. Now, one of the things that I think 
and, and Jeremy, we've talked about this in the past. I'm guilty as charged. I thought the bank walk was going to be a much bigger problem. Bank walk being where you say, oh, I got zero percent over here. I'm out of this bank. Put me in a money market fund. That's the bank walk in a nutshell. I thought it was going to be a bigger issue. Um, but the mega banks have retained assets, and to some extent, the, the regionals have too. And so, the original prognostications of doom, gloom uh, of March and April have not come to fruition just yet. I mean, the issue that I worry about, you, you have your formative years uh, in the global financial crisis, that type of thing. You wonder, it, you know, New Century Financial went under in February of 07. It's what, 13 more months before Bear Stearns decides to blow up and another six more months before that, before Lehman does. So are we just in some early stages of some banking issues? But thus far, no. Well, I, I, I will say I do think the banking model has to change. And the problem is you see why innovation comes from startups, because the banks are in a precarious position where they can't pay people five and a half percent rates. I mean, how many people are getting that on their checking account? I, nobody's getting five, five and a half percent and they're doing everything. Not maybe some you know people are moving to money market funds, but the traditional I'm writing, you know, paying my bills for my checking account. Nobody's getting that. Now, the technology is there so that you can't. Like, you can easily pass on. You don't need to have, you know, people were worried about, well, I don't have FDIC shirts over 250. Well, you can now, the technology is in a place where you could write checks off of treasuries. And, and it's getting harder for them to keep rates where they are. So I actually do expect over time, more pressure on these banks, their funding costs to keep going up. The large banks are benefiting because of the fear of the small banks going under and they're seeing deposits. And the large banks can't afford to pay the trillions in deposits 5%. But if you're not getting 5%, you should look for solutions that'll get you there because it's, there's, you know, it's increasingly there. Yeah. How much concern is there on the uh, health and maturity assets? in terms of, of, you know, yields continuing upwards as, is the, I mean, is, is, is there a sort of, has that been brushed aside because of the feds actions early on, or, I mean, is there any, is, do you have any concerns about what might happen given that health, health and maturity assets are still declining in value? This is where they say, you know, the fed puts out these fires and they create all sorts of programs where they're going to keep the, yeah. these things solvent. And I don't think depositors are really at risk. They're going to do everything to make the depositors whole. They haven't explicitly said that. They say that for, and then you had that awkward testimony with Yellen saying, you know, a small community bank, why should those depositors be at risk? Well, if you're not a SIFI, you know, a, a, a systemically important financial institution, then you are at risk. But I, I don't see depositors actually losing their cash. They're going to step into help them, but bank shareholders won't be protected. You, you've seen that the bank shareholders don't have anything there in many of these, oh, no. these situations. But so, yes, I, I think there's, you could see a lot more bank consolidation over time. Um, I that wouldn't surprise me, but I, I think the profit model is, is gotta be reconstructed from relying on cheap funding from people discerning zero and not passing along. We're going to, oh, we could take your cash and get 5% risk free. That's not going to be a sustainable model anymore, um, in my view. I think over the next few years, you're going to see so much more competition for that. Every ad you see everywhere is people marketing some type of earn 5% on your savings. Even Apple's now doing savings accounts with, 
you know, Apple save in some way, but they're still a percent below where you could be, um, is what I'd say. You know, they're not, they're trying to keep a percent spread on top of what you could be getting in treasuries. Um, and so I think there's, there's definitely going to be more competition. Well, they don't need to compete with the repo rate. They need to compete with the banks, right? So they're at right. the moment, they're considerably more competitive than the banks on the rates that they pay. And if the gang, the banks get more competitive, Apple's got room to to uh, to nudge their rates higher to continue to attract assets from from uh, traditional deposit institutions, right? Um, that's that sort of those new banks are uh, are an interesting new dimension to the landscape that uh, we haven't had to deal with before. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, and of course, the lending facility that they put in place to allow these um, smaller banks to, to manage their health to maturity assets and, and manage those losses, that is, you know, that doesn't go on forever. I think there's a one year term on that, right? So we're slowly but surely creeping up on the fact when these banks are going to have to find new sources of funding or else um, we're going to be in a whole new solvency crisis. But at least we've got the banks have plenty of runway to determine and, and the regulators have plenty of runway to determine which banks are going to be in trouble and have time to plan um, how, how to manage those mergers or whatever other transactions need to happen, I guess, right? Well, and it'd be critical that they have to do it, you know, at, in maybe a five and three quarters or even a 6% rate environment. I mean, one of the things that we seem to notice with the bank walk was the psychological ch change that happened with each round number 100 basis point move in rates. At 1% at money, money market rates, nobody did anything. At 2%, a few people did it. It was around 5%. You started to really see that that swarm of people start to really move money. And then that was the issue. I mean, a lot of these banks are still paying 0.01% um, on savings accounts. And one of the things that's interesting about this dynamic is, and I remember this from the, the private client days, there's a lot of people who are in the moneyed class that are sitting on a ton of cash and just have for years. We always talk about a 60-40 allocation. You got 60% equities and 40% bonds. But if you go into someone's high net worth or ultra high net worth um, uh, department at a private bank, there's a ton of accounts that are 20 or 30 or 40% cash because they've been sitting on it for years. They had a liquidity event. They let's wait for another entry point. There's a million reasons for it. And now it's a situation where the type of person who buys a Rolex, the type of person who buys a, a car that costs six figures or something like that, they may have millions earning 5%. And then on the other side of this barbell, We've shocked credit card rates. That's paycheck to paycheck, minimum payments on that credit card. How am I going to make rent? Can you lend me 50 bucks so I can make rent? These are the, this is the barbell. Mm -hmm. Now at six, 700 incremental basis points on their cost of credit card debt from where we were before this, before everybody's cost of debt chart spiked in the last 24, 36 months. So you almost, you start to wonder, do you have a consumer discretionary versus consumer staples set up here, which would be counterintuitive if it's really a situation where people are backing up on these credit card bills. So we'll have to see how that ends up playing out as well. I, I lose some sleep over that concept. I, I got to figure out what, what the play is. Um, it might not be too much of a situation inside growth and value, for example, because consumer discretionary used to be heavily weighted more towards the S&P 500 growth than the S&P 500 value. But 
after those December 22 rebounds over at Standard & Poor's, it kind of became one of those sectors that's neither here nor there. So maybe it's not too big of a deal for some of these fund management situations, but certainly a situation for political risk, social sentiment, this type of thing. And that's what pushes a, a hand of a Jay Powell type. So let's, let's um, talk about your favorite subject, Jeff, for a second, um, housing. <laughs> um, or my least favorite. Jeff's in a new house. Jeff at the housing fair bought a new house. So let us full disclosure for the record here. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's not, notwithstanding that was bold. Uh, Jeff's personal choices here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty remarkable to see. I think I saw yesterday that the number or the total number of, of homes for sale on the market is at the lowest absolute number, not just like relative population, but the lowest yeah. absolute number in like two decades. Um, mm -hmm. I know there's a large number of multi-unit um, apartments coming on, on stream or, you yes. know, they're in the pipeline to be delivered sometime over the next year or so. Um, and, and new homes, like new single family homes, there's a fair amount of those in the pipeline. But of course, they don't add up to much. They're only sort of a small fraction, typically, of the total amount of homes for sale. So how, how can home prices correct if you've got such a huge portion of homeowners that have locked into mm -hmm. um, to, to mortgages at such low rates? You've got, I think you posted some high 30% number of homes that are held outright by um, presumably mostly baby boomers, for example. So you've got these, these um, what do they call them in crypto? Diamond hands holders of, <laughs> of homes, right? By virtue of the fact that, that either they own them outright and you know they don't want to go finance to buy a new home. Yeah, they're not. Or they already are locked in at such good rates. They don't, they want to go and, and get another mortgage at high rates. How is the housing market going to correct? You've still got you know, the millennials, which is demographically mm. are this quite a large uh, demographic cohort in their household formation years, desperate to, to buy homes. You've got a record low number of homes for sale available to them to form those households and start families. How does this dynamic equilibrate? You hit on about seven mm. critical <laughs> points. You know, when you look back at the data, for many years, there's not that tight of a fit between mortgage applications and interest rates. But one of the things is, is if you look at that 40 year chart of everybody's interest rate coming down, wh whatever interest rate we're looking at, whether it's mortgage rates or T notes or, or whatever the situation may be, we always every few years gave a subset of this country a chance to refi. And generally speaking, over the course of time, when you let several million people in any given cycle refi, that's, that props up marginal propensity to buy something, car or, or even another house for that matter. And now we, there's been a bizarre situation where, you know, and, and over there on Twitter, we always sound super confident. Oh, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. Well, the, the weird thing is when you're looking at seven and a quarter on a conforming mortgage where that's been shocked on, uh, on the magnitude of what, 450 basis points over and above when it was two and three quarters um, in this is critical. And this goes back to Adam when you were talking about the speed and magnitude of the Fed. 
450 basis points of a shock, but quickly. Mm -hmm. And now it's created that situation where the entire neighborhood has one house for sale. Take it or leave it. And it's now so distorted and so counterintuitive to everything you've ever learned that it would be that the correction in housing would be necessitated by a cost of financing declining in that it could be, and who knows, right. that maybe it's the eight handle on mortgages that would send prices up even that much more, which would make no logical sense to your freshman year textbook. Because now there's not one house for sale in the neighborhood, but there's zero in the neighborhood. And you got to go to that other neighborhood where there's only one house. But it could be that you need to get the move back down to a five handle or a four handle on mortgages for all, for everybody to finally, who's been now pent up, the whole cohort of people that were waiting before COVID, the during COVID, and now the post COVID people are saying, I want to move, but now I can't move for all these circumstances. We're still at 100 cents on the dollar from peak pricing in, ha in houses. And now certainly I can't do it at seven and a quarter. So it's one of those situations where, okay, well, why would interest rates be falling? <laughs> Ostensibly because you're in a recession. And we're rallying the bond market. And at the same time, that would be, that would be a, a situation that would propel more homes onto the market and start to clear it out. So I, it's, it's almost like that would get um, the, the housing bears back together. I mean, how much would it correct? You just don't know because maybe, maybe we do have that structural labor shortage. Maybe that's legit. I mean, I'm not completely sold on it, but the arguments make a lot of sense and maybe that saves our hide that we get into a recession and the worst case scenario, Jeremy, is the unemployment rate goes to five or five and a half. That's livable. It's if it gets to 10, like the global financial crisis, that we've got a real problem on our hands. But Entering the global financial crisis, we did not have a labor shortage in this country. That was coming off the heels of the jobless recovery. That was, you couldn't really find a job that easily in that credit boom cycle. It felt good times. The stock market was rallying. Home prices were going up. But it wasn't that easy to get a job. Here, it's like, oh, you want a job? You take a job. <laughs> so let's remember that as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's maybe an, we just have to raise that's, the floor. That's, that's yeah. the official, that's, that's official talk. You want a job, take the job. Here's the job. That's, uh, that's technical speak. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> that's, that's, a, that's an amazing view, Jeff. I, I think the, uh, you know, the whole idea of this sort of stasis that Adam's talking about where, you know, nobody's moving, nobody's selling their home because there's no, there's absolutely no incentive to do that because of financing costs. But then you have these marginal, these incremental homes for sale. Mm -hmm. The one one home for sale in an entire. Sorry, my phone's ringing. You have this one home for sale in in the entire neighborhood, and everybody's pouncing on it. That's looking for a home. Mm -hmm. So that 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 low volume, let low trading volume of homes is driving prices further, further higher because there's no other comparables, and and uh, that means everybody. You know, even though rates are where they are, everybody's homes are increasing in value still because, or or at least staying the same, if not increasing, because of that low volume. But then it would take a decline in rates to see the volume increase again and see homes trading again. But it also implies a recession. It also implies, I mean, there's so many, there's so many moving parts, but you can well, see where people will be a few years from now scratching their heads, wondering what the hell happened. 
And there's, there's also, yeah. are we so focused on home prices? And I mean, that's what Jeremy Schwartz is, 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 is emphasizing because he's right. got a theme on here with the CPI. This is like your whole thing, Jeremy. And so the CPI numbers are widely distorted. And so guys like me and Jeremy are looking at these at home prices on a daily basis. We're looking at rent. Now there's there's a concept here, Butler, that I think may be critical because it's are we are we are we worried about home prices when we should be worried so much more about activity? And I think you may have heard me say this in the past. You, you know, when do you rip out carpets? When do you rip out carpets? The landlord rips out carpets on 12 months and one day after the tenant came in. And so I, I, I think about this from this perspective. You own a home for 10 years or something like that. Uh, this kitchen is getting dated. Well, you know what? I need to sell this house. So let's get the contractors in here and fix this kitchen. But if I'm sitting still... I just got hit. It's, you know, it's like, you know, the bacon prices just went up. The egg prices just went up. It's $48,000 for a car. That kitchen can wait till next year and the, and the con general contractor doesn't get a phone call. And the HELOC I'm taking out's at eight, eight and a half percent. Yeah. If you're lucky, I don't yeah. know what the HELOC yeah. is now if we're at seven and a quarter. And, and, you know, this is something I've talked about with you at some length, Jeremy, but then, okay, Let's take a, a point that, that Adam brought up a second ago, which is there's going to be all of this brand new construction of multifamily that's hitting. But by the nature of multifamily, that is landlorded out. And it's more frequently painted than your detached home. Detached home, you get around to painting it. But with a multifamily unit, new tenants want a fresh coat of paint on there. So there's, so there's that as well. Is it, are we have a freeze up because of the owners, but then again, all these apartments are coming on. And so maybe these contractors still get a phone call because they're not going to rent that thing out at that, if those pipes are backed up or if yeah. that, or if that light is flickering, that's not going to be rentable. So make sure that we consider all this. We're focused on the home prices and we need to be focused on what happens to the electrician, what happens to the hardwood floor, uh, repair guys, what happens to the landscaping crew, and are they going to see a hit to activity? I think from the from the ownership side, they will see a hit to activity, but we need to be cognizant of the countervailing point, which is the renting society that we're creating here. Are we seeing any signs of um, of that thesis playing out in, in uh, revenue numbers or comments from management at Lowe's or Home Depot or any of the other companies that might be beneficiaries of this? I don't know, Jeremy, we've we seen anything on the home improvement retailers. You know, in some ways, if there's been a surprise, it's been in that home building index itself, which people yeah. are like, hey, yeah. higher rate, you would have expected this to put pressure under the home building stocks. But they were a few weeks ago hitting uh, really one of the biggest surprises of, of this of this cycle. And partly from the demographics, partly the supply and, and, and all these different issues. But I'd say that's been the major surprise. I haven't seen... Jeff's point play out yet, but I, I'd say, you know, the only people squeezed are these new buyers. And so it's definitely supporting these rental markets. It's supporting rent. You're seeing the, you know, the REITs tend to get hit with the higher rates. And, and that was a classic thing that, that sold off. But you're, you know, I think some of the, the studies I've seen show three, 4% rent growth and sort of supported by, Hey, these people aren't going to buy new buyers aren't going to buy a home. So there's sort of more growth for now in in rents and those are 
are, are staying robust. Yeah, it was I mean, a I sweet think setup thesis... for those home builders, Jeremy. I, I'm stunned. I was, I would have well, never thought it, they though, were going to rally like that. Jeff, and I agree. I'm, I'm, I was, I'm surprised now in retrospect. Yeah. yeah. I think you can sort of re-engine or, or reverse engineer this and sort of be like, okay, if your thesis is homeowners are locked in at these low mortgages, um, so that you're going to have a, you know, a record low number of existing homes coming onto the market to accommodate new buyers. Mm-hmm. Isn't this a really great um, opportunity for home builders, which are going to be the only supplier of, of marginal homes to, like I, yeah. you know, like I, I made the point out a while ago, the millennials are a really large demographic bubble. There's a there's a huge amount of demand for household and formation and starting a family, you know, going back kind of three four years over the next six seven years, these these people need a place to live. If existing homes are not going to provide that supply, the home builders may have a real opportunity to make up some small fraction of uh, of that supply, and in in the meantime, maybe make higher margins on the homes they sell, even at even yeah. though they've got to finance at higher rates. They've got a cooler you know, Doom, full Doom, of ice cubes in the Sahara Desert. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, exactly. Doomberg had a, we, we, we spoke to Doomberg a couple of weeks ago and, and Doomberg had a really great analogy, which was that if you take a balloon and you squeeze it at the center, right, the ends pop out of your hand, right? And so, so if you, if the squeezed part is the supply of homes, what pops out at the other, you know, at the sides or at the top of, you know, out, out of the opening of your hand is... That's what Adam's talking about, right? Is is the suddenly there's this demand for new homes because there's no demand, there's no there's no supply of existing homes on the market. So so then then there's definitely a cohort of millennials that can afford homes at any price, right? I mean it's not it's not all millennials, but it's definitely there's a there's a seg, there's a segment of well-heeled millennials. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, from their careers or from their parents, that they're going to have money to buy new homes and the ability to finance them even at today's rates or willingness to finance at these rates. So so you definitely have that that unintended or unforeseen occurrence happening in demand, which would explain, you know, the the, the, the big question mark. How did, how did, in hindsight, how did that happen? And so it's very interesting. I, but... Uh, I had to bring up that analogy because it was so it was such a great way of explaining how how something you know un, unexpected or unforeseen could come out of what we're talking about. And Jeremy, you had Doomberg on the on the Sirius XM show. What was that three weeks ago? No, yeah, he's uh, he left the, the X platform, but he's joining these other. Uh, he's, he's definitely one more the more interesting reads on Substack. Uh, I definitely enjoy a lot yeah. of his notes. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So let's sure. um let's talk a little bit about about the em- employment, right? Um because I think I think not just the Fed, I think a lot of people are scratching their heads on how employment has remained so resilient over the last year or so. Um the, I think the best thesis I'd come up with is that um most companies got such a great signal from central bankers that they were going to raise rates that I mean, we see these in this in the numbers, um, just an overwhelming percentage of especially, you know, large companies 
refinanced and extended their duration in 2021 in anticipation of this, you know, shift in interest rate environment. And so you've got a lot of really well capitalized uh, companies out there who just are not feeling that refinancing cost pressure. So you don't, they don't have higher interest charges eating into their profit margins and also putting a cap on new projects. And therefore they haven't needed to trim staff the way that you've typically seen, um, you know, the unemployment rate react to these kinds of rate hikes in the past. Does that resonate with you at all? Are you seeing other dynamics that, that are playing into this puzzle? And how do you view this evolving over the next kind of three to six months? Mm-hmm. I can go ahead and take I mean, that. I, I oh, start off by saying, I was surprised that we haven't seen more unemployment reports. And then the question is, all right, so are we really gonna navigate this without seeing it at all? Or is it that, you know, is it going to actually show up and it's just been the lags are, you just don't know the long and variable lags of, you hear about monetary policy are just not showing up yet in, in sort of yet being the key word. Jeff put out something on, on X today that was, was uh, we putting out from, from Pinecone Macro, Chase Taylor is one of the, uh, the other research groups yeah, that I follow okay. closely from the Dallas Fed. And sort of the, some of the minutes or, or notes from the Dallas Fed were quite interesting. And, and sort of the first section was on, you know, what what's really been booming this year. It's AI-related tech narratives. And yet you say, all right, so where did that, who's been faced from the crunch that I talked about? The only private companies in in tech have been, well, if you're an unprofitable business, and I, I think about unprofitable tech being one of those areas, but who's facing some of the pinches, these unprofitable companies. But some of the comments in the Dallas Fed report, is that a sign of what is a little bit to come? Uh, and so the first sentence was, higher interest rates are affecting industrial production like never before. Um, This is time to stop raising interest rates right in the Dallas Fed meeting notes from some from some customers in in computing and electronic product manufacturing. Customer orders came to a sudden halt. Volume dropped 51 percent year over year. Now, that's the kind of stuff that can that 51 percent on what year over year. 51 percent on what in it was just a general board comment in the Dallas Fed notes from a computer and product okay. manufacturing electronics, right? So these are the, the notes that you get in wow. these in these minutes. So now is that an early sign? Is it just an anecdote to these companies in the Dallas Fed region? Perhaps. But you know, you could you could expect you would expect that higher rates has some kind of impact. You just don't know when. And you know Perhaps it's in the unprofitable tech segment that you see it percolate, even though they've been so hot with the AI boom, you, you do still have to worry that eventually these cycles do come. And uh, so I wouldn't say you're completely out of the woods on these things. Higher rates eventually feeds into things. And so you'd expect it to show up. And how soon, Who you don't know. But but I'm still worried about the banks because of their lending issues. And you'd be worried that it ultimately shows up into these other CapEx cycles as well. Well, so you- Jeremy, Jeremy, given, given the um, bifurcation of views between what you're forecasting and what the Fed is doing in terms of, mon- you know, the bifurcation in terms of monetary policy views, what, like where where have you got your sights right now? What have, what are you what are you focused on in terms of opportunities? Where do you think the 
you know, where do you think the nut is? Well, you're still, I mean, what's, what's amazing is with the inverted yield curve, you can earn five and a half percent with taking no risk, right? So that is, is at the short end of the curve, huge opportunity still just in floating rate treasuries. I, particularly for people who have too much money in their checking account, there's a huge opportunity to manage your checking accounts much better. And that itself is a, is a big upgrade. I still kind of like high yield in a way. You say, I say I'm talking about these potential slowdowns, but you get eight and a half to nine percent in a lot of these high yield indexes. And you could screen for are they paying back their, do they have cash flow, you know, so that you could actually manage not just by giving more weight to the most indebted bonds, but, you know, can you pay back the bond because you're positive free cash flow? That has a big difference over time. And again, you can pick up 300 base points over that treasury number I talked about, 8.5% plus four-year durations. I I think that has on par returns as equities. The S&P 500 today, pricing at a little bit below a 20 PE, I had 2 to 3% inflation over the long term. Gives me a, you know, 20 PE is a 5% earnings yield. So that's a... 78% nominal. I think you get that with high yield bonds. Um, yes. Can they go, can spreads widen out? They're nowhere near where they are during a recession. Yes. There could be some pain in the short run before that eight and a half percent looks like a real good long-term. But if I'm holding it for seven years from today, you know, you might be on par between high yield bonds and stocks, which is sort of interesting. Uh, and then just, there's a lot of value opportunities around the world. Jeff and I talk a lot about Japan. It's one of the oh, cheaper yeah. markets. We like that <laughs> a lot. Um, and that it, it, it's got all sorts of different things that's going for it. But, you know, you don't have to be in mega cap tech in the U.S. There's a lot of other places you could you could look. Yeah. Well, Jeff, Jeremy, had some, were... Jeff had something <clears throat> to ahead. say on employment that I want to make sure he gets he gets a chance to say. Yeah, let's, to, let's oh, do I that. Got, I got things to say about Japan. Yeah, no, I want to get there, too. I want to get to that, too. Japan. Oh, man, I've got Japan on my mind. Um, you're operating a restaurant. This thing comes around, you don't know, lockdown, what is this? I don't even understand what is this concept. Oh, we're, everybody's going to be back to normal in 14 days. This is going to be weird for 14 days. A month, two months, a year. When's this all going to end? I can't get a line cook. I can't get service staff. I can't get somebody to greet people at the door here at this restaurant. Yeah, just proverbial... Just select a restaurant because we all enter restaurants and can identify this business model. And the COVID money's been spent. Um, people are paying the 20-some odd percent on their credit cards. The 48-month auto loan is a, is stratospheric. It had a seven-handle on it. It's probably eight last time. And ne next time I look at it. And the gravy train is over. Um, they're not coming into the restaurant in the same volumes. But... Man, it was really hard to hire people in 21, 22, and into 23. So now it's time to fire some people in order to make, you know, the books balance here. But I have in my mind, I'm the fictitious restaurant owner here, that I need to hoard my assets. And those assets are the people that are entering the door every day and waiting these tables and making these drinks and making the hamburgers back there. Because I... Is it going to come back? Is it, is, or, or is it, you know, maybe it hasn't even started dying yet, but I anticipate it's going to start dying. But you're not necessarily firing these people. And it's a psychological lag that you normally have an economic cycle. It's a sine wave and, oh, 
18, 24 months after things deteriorate, the last stage of that cycle may be that the labor market has its fall apart, except this time you have a much greater desire to hoard that asset. And so then you have people like me, and it's like, oh, this housing market is freezing. Realtors are gasping for oxygen. The mortgage brokers are gasping. People are going to be stuck. Should we all pause to shed a tear for the mortgage brokers and the realtors? Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, making in, you know, <laughs> working day to day, it's 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 a living. I, I don't know that I would want to do it. You get to deal with some people. You got to deal with me. You got to deal with me. So at any rate, <laughs> um, <laughs> you got to deal with me. Um, but you start thinking about a slowdown and how much have the lags changed or have they not changed at all? And then you have some of these other issues that were very real and absolutely did happen. When COVID hit, you had a reverse migration back south of the border and into Central America for, I don't know, maybe 6, 12, 18 months. I'd have to look at the data because people got initially dumped. 30 or 40 million people got dumped. And so they went back to their original home country and some fraction of them didn't come back or didn't come back yet. So that was part of the labor shortage that you saw. Um, you also had, and we've, we've tried to quantify this, Jeremy, with very little success, that, that hypothetical 63-year-old retiree that took retirement and never came back. We've been trying to figure out how many people that represents or if it represents a large cohort at all. You did have a spike in the death rate uh, during COVID. And so, you know, that's people as well. Um, but all kinds of things got, got materially out of whack. Um, the birth rate took an immediate hit in most countries. I think only the Germans or somebody, somebody, uh, some major economy had, a, had an increase in their birth rate, but everybody else had a decline in their birth rate during COVID. So we ask about these issues, and I think we have to have a little humble pie and a little humility. We're looking at the labor market going forward. Hey, we just experienced this thing where every one of us had to change our y-axis on all of our of our labor market charts. Let's. Forecast with a grain of salt here. I think the labor market will deteriorate, but I don't know that it will. So let's we let's shall chat see. a little bit about about the early retirees because I think that's a really interesting um, example of where we may have a substantial error term in this cycle. So imagine you're um, you know you're in your early sixties. You weren't sort of planning to retire in, in mm -hmm. uh, back in 2019, 2020. Um, retirement wasn't really on the immediate horizon. It wasn't top of mind. COVID hits, you spend, uh, you know, a year at home, you completely change your, your lifestyle. Um, you also, your priorities kind of shift as well a little bit and you decide to pull the plug, right? Well, if you decide to pull the plug and interest rates are zero, then it's a, it's kind of a scary proposition to think about how you're going to fund your retirement living expenses. Now, uh, here we have a situation. The Fed comes along and they raise rates on cash. So now I can earn five, six, you know, seven, eight percent if I'm willing to take a little bit of credit risk on very short term money. And the prospects of being able to live off my savings all of a sudden are pretty attractive. What 
you know, I, ironically, high rates are causing this demographic to potentially stay out of the job market mm-hmm. and only by lowering rates are we going to bring them back in. And, they, mm-hmm. and rates would have a lower price substantially because we all know that sort of once you get entrenched in retirement, then it gets harder and harder to, to unretire and go back into the workforce. Any estimate of, you know, the proportional impact that that might have or whether I'm, you know, uh, smoking bongs on whether or not this is even a, <laughs> this is even a, a dynamic that, that is playing a role. It's like a duration argument, isn't it? But in reverse. It, it also goes to one of the things we critique Powell on a little bit, although we, I think he's backed off some of the comments is when you have a structural shift down in the number of workers, should they be trying to sort of crash the economy to get wages to go down? Like if you have less oranges, what happens to the price of orange juice? It goes up. If you have less workers, real wages should go up. And, uh, you know, that, that's a natural supply, that, that natural response to a lower supply. Uh, and so I think, you know, there's an element of should monetary policy be used to do that. Well, the boomers are just, at, you know, having, having experienced 20 years of exceptional returns in equities and exceptional returns on the fixed income side, you've got, you got boomers who are, who are cast up from, you know, 20 to 30 years of exceptional equity returns and 20 to 30 years of exceptional bond returns on the back of, you know, a steadily declining rate environment. You know, most of these boomers came into the workforce when rates were at, you know, in the mid-teens, right? And have watched mm-hmm. rates decline steadily over 30 years. And obviously having an average interest rate on your money of call it seven, eight percent over your savings horizon and the tailwind of steadily declining rates with steadily increasing equity valuations. Like boomers are in really good shape. So I guess mm-hmm. my point is if they're, if you're well cashed up, you know you've won the lottery in terms of your uh, working horizon investment returns and you're looking at six, 7% safe income on your money right now, I think it may take a lot to attract the, the, the over 60 crowd back into the labor market. And that yes. may be a major contributor to why we're seeing stubbornly low unemployment rates. Yeah, and I think, did, did Jeremy get booted off when, when I was booted off too? Oh, I there. Didn't see him back He's just back extremely still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, take this back to um, one of the points you made earlier. We talked about the homes being owned free and clear. The setup for the baby boom generation was pretty ideal um, mm-hmm. in that they were able to refi all the way down on those homes. When there are 38, 39% of, that's the thing, Adam. You guys, oh, I've got a whole thesis on this. Jeremy, you've heard me d- say this thesis a hundred times. Where do journalists live in this country, this country being the United States? They live in New York City. Journalists are reporting from places like London and New York. They disproportionately know people who are servicing mortgages because, come on, people don't own stuff. Most people don't own stuff free and clear when the price is in the seven figures. But not everybody lives in Manhattan. People live in Kansas. And when you look at the baby boom generation, 
a, a large number of them own that dwelling free and clear. So when we are going to shock the mortgage rate and destroy the, the millennials that have a baby on the way, well, the baby boom doesn't, doesn't need to really blink at that unless they're, aside from the mortgaged cohort of retirees, there's plenty of them as well. But who are these 39% who own it free and clear? It's not 25-year-olds. And so they own a home free and clear in disproportionate numbers. Basically, everybody, it's something like 80 or 90% of people who are free and clear have silver hair. The price of that asset keeps going up. The S&P is still hanging out at 4,400. The peak was 4,800. That's not the end of the world. And a 20 PE. Yeah. 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 Um, baby boomers, by nature of just having been around longer, have smaller debt burdens than young people with student loans and, and so forth. And so, Jeremy, one of the themes for, uh, um, you know, when you deal with these issues of generational stratification, potential political strife, this generation's going to be pitted against that generation. Wait a minute. Hold on. The baby boomers are our parents and our family members or grandparents. What are they, like the enemy? I mean, yeah. come on. You know, it's like I got... I'm in the house. My father's downstairs. He's a baby boomer. What, am I supposed to be mad at him? Yeah. You know? Because <laughs> he um, took it all. <laughs> it, you know, the, the, the issue that you think in developing the bull thesis is the baby boom, when they got the cost of living adjustment, they got a nine handle on that yep. in Social Security. Yeah. So the coal option for a bull thesis is fiscal stimulus. It doesn't make economic sense to provide fiscal stimulus, but some hat tip thrown in the form of you know, a stimulus package, a $500 per member of the household to people who are, it's going to hit disproportionately people who are 30 or 40 or 50. That's something that I would think could be on the docket in the next six or 12 months that nobody's really talking about. And I don't know why we all act surprised when stimulus packages arrive, because that is now official American policy to just stimulate. This has been going on since the turn of the century when we had the $300 stimulus packages in the Bush administration. Um, yeah, so the, the, the student loan wall is happening. I think that's happening this week. They're not going to let it hit the fan. I think that they're going to put another stimulus back. It's horrible for the future of the treasury market. But that is the bullish coal option for discretionary purchases. I think I would not be surprised to see something like that in the next six to 12 Well, the months. budget office has made clear they've already forecast. We're going to see between 6 and 9% of GDP budget deficits through 2035. In the U.S., we know that fiscal profligacy very directly stimulates demand. And, um, you know, they, they would have to be godlike stick handlers of economic policy in order to drive the, that stimulus into the exact right areas of investment that, you know, simultaneously increases the supply of goods and services above the extra demand that's going to come into play just on the fact that they're going to be fire hosing money into the economy. So, you know, I, I think that is certainly a factor that I don't hear bandied about enough in these kinds of discussions. I mean, we they, they've already forecast what these deficits are going to look like. Keep in mind, their forecasts are at an average in, um, interest rate of 
So, you know, with, if, if rates stay higher than that, then, then obviously the, the deficits as a percent of GDP go up commensurately. So that's definitely a wild card. I think you're right in, in, in uh, highlighting that, Jeff. Um, all right. You guys are both dying to talk about Japan. Um, and <laughs> well, I agree Japan, with you. India, like, like it's such a, a firecracker in terms of opportunity here. Um, what is happening well, in Japan? Why do you see it lining up as potentially the strategic allocation of the next five to 10 years? Um, and, you know, what could potentially derail it? Okay. Uh, I wanted to, before we get to that, I wanted to ask Jeremy about your most recent, um, your most recent essay, your most recent article on uh, NVIDIA versus Cisco, the, par the parallel. Sure, and you can contrast uh, Just because Nvidia is the hot thing right now, right? That, that everybody's talking about Nvidia. You can contrast but... the low valuations of Japan with the high valuations of Nvidia here. So <laughs> Nvidia, you know, we we did a piece a few weeks ago. It was one of my more viral pieces on on Twitter, but but also just a bigger connected with one of the most popular stocks, but also one of the most expensive and the most expensive stock in the S&P 500. So it crossed that Rubicon in March, becoming the highest price to sale stock in the S&P. Uh, and it was at the time around 40 times trailing sales, 20 time, 25 forward sales. So if you say, you know, you take analysts at their word that it's going to do and hey, we just got NVIDIA earnings report and it they blew out uh, sales again. Um, so so far, people are underestimating what what its its sales prospects have been. But quite interestingly, after this report, which was another blowout, it it right. popped them after hours, but it didn't continue through through the close of the week, which is yep. maybe a sign of hey, who's left to buy? But the bigger the bigger point was we studied like a hundred companies who got to be the most expensive stock among the five hundred largest, and what you said is. How do they do next 12 months, three years, five years, 10 years? Interestingly, of the 100 stocks that got to be the highest priced in the S&P, this over the last, call it 60 years, it, over the next 12 months, the median return wasn't bad. You know, it, it, actually in tech, it wasn't great, but the median for the, these 100 over the next 12 months basically beat the market by a percent. So that would say, hey, until next March, on average, you know, media, if, if, if NVIDIA had the median multiple, it actually would actually beat the market by a small amount. But over the three, five, 10 years is when they really struggled. And we had studied these different price to sales buckets. And that's where we bucketed things for greater than 25 times price to sales, greater than 40 times price to sales. And the basic there was that 20% fail only 20% beat the market over the next year. And the median underperformance is like 36%. So it's like some terrible number. And then 90% fail over three, five, 10 years. So that set a lot of people talk about it. And then people were like, well, who does win? Who are some long-term winners? And then we sort of drew back to, well, if you go back 20 years ago, we had the tech bubble. The two winners from 20 years ago were, were Amazon and Microsoft, Amazon grew sales 30% a year for over two decades. So not many people have that yeah. scale possibility. But you go to the top of the list in 2000 and Cisco was hallmarked as the infrastructure for the internet, just like NVIDIA is now the infrastructure for AI. So I, I happen to love the Cisco analogy because of that. And hey, Cisco grew 10% a year, triple the, the sales growth rate of S&P for a decade. 
it's still lost money over the last 20 years. I mean, so it's down. The SP is up 7% a year for two decades and Cisco's down. So it, it shows the oh. challenges of the prime stock and Cisco was the prime internet stock and NVIDIA is the prime AI stock. So, you know, you, you could say, well, what caused Cisco to get off the throne? Well, all sorts of competition came nobody thinks anybody can compete with NVIDIA chips, but that's what you know today. Three years from now, you might be talking a different story. Five years from now, a different story. And so it, as the prime focus stock for the market, you understand why there's attention on it today, I think is challenged. Um, so I'm probably more in the camp that it's Cisco than Amazon. But, you know, I'm, I, yeah. I got roots with the Jeremy Siegel value style. So, you know, he, I, I started studying from him during his tech bubble days when he started talking about big cap tech stocks were a sucker's bet in March of 2000. I, I feel like NVIDIA has echoes of that, um, but I might be just overly, overly influenced by my Siegel roots there. Yeah. So no, no doubt it's a great company, but it might not be a great stock. Exactly. Yep. That's, that's right. what happened. You get very excited by yep. the fast growth and you extrapolate it into forever. And those things uh, often, you know, face gravity. In contrast, of course, the Japanese stock market peaked in 1989 mm -hmm. and um, yeah. just broke out <laughs> above a 25 year channel recently, um, looking at the topics and the Nick guy. And, um, I know you guys are going to tell us all about why the uh, the fundamentals of the Japanese market seem right for a generational resurgence here. So mm -hmm. um, who wants to take the microphone on that one? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, well, Jeremy, you want to go ahead? <laughs> I'll start and then I'll pass it to Jeff. We both, we, we both equally talk about it more than others, I think. Um, you know, if I, going back to the antidote of, tech has been Mr. Buffett. He said, like, well, who can reignite interest in Japan other than Warren Buffett? But he has. I mean, three years ago, we wrote a piece, Follow Buffett into Japan, when he started buying these five Japanese trading companies that were sort of like these commodity center houses, but also they were basically like the venture capital for Japan. If you want to do deals in Japan, these these five are sort of like mini Berkshires in some way of of doing deals and, and connecting the whole ecosystem. And um, you know, they were double digit earnings yields, good dividend yields, but they've been growing dividends since he's been funding them. He's also got a carry trade on where he's borrowing in yen. So he has no currency risk when he goes over there. So there's like this 5% additional carry. It's one of the reasons why another thing you could buy with Japan now is you get a 5% carry on top without taking any currency risk, which I call the, the additional Buffett trade. So I like... But I, I like that trade. You can get, you know, 11 to 12 times earnings, which is 8 to 9% earnings yields, which almost double the S&P, but you had 5% carry on top and you're well more than, I think, double the S&P's expected return from, from many ways. Now, then you've got the technical breakouts, like you're saying, Adam, um, but also um, there, there's, Jeff's been talking about some of the dynamics from just the, both there's corporate governance changes, companies, being told by the Tokyo Stock Exchange, you got to get your price to book above one. They're responding with dividends and buybacks. But then mm -hmm. there's also incentive programs to invest that they're upping the size. You know, there's what's called these NISA savings accounts, and they're tripling the size of that. So to try to get tax, sort of like our 401k programs in the U.S., 
more forced savings or, or, or you know, by creating taxes. And so there's all sorts of things lining up of the next sort of looking ahead, being valuation driven, but then corporates actually doing shareholder friendly actions and then encouraging local sentiment to change. So all those things can make me positive on Japan. I just want to, before Jeff chimes in, just sort of translate or emphasize maybe um, your point about the fact that if you buy Japanese equities as a as an American and you buy a hedged ETF, in other words, you're hedging out the exposure to the yen while buying exposure to Japanese equities, you get this 5% excess carry. So you're both, you're both hedging out your currency risk and you're getting paid to do that hedging um, and, and gaining exposure to this uh, to this highly prospective uh, regional market, which um, I just wanted to emphasize. Jeff, um, I know you had a lot more <clears throat> to say. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Oh, I got a million things to say. I mean, Pierre, when was the last time you were out on a Saturday night? You're at some event, you're at a, you know, whatever you're at, you're at a Super Bowl party. And, oh, you're in finance. Oh, is my Tesla going to go up? <laughs> I don't know what your Tesla's going to do. Well, it's the last time somebody in this social situation dropped a Japanese stock on you in conversation. Has this ever happened to any of you? Jeremy, have you ever had at Saturday night out downtown somebody say, oh, yeah, really? Is, is Toyota going to go up? Has <laughs> anybody ever done that? And it's because Americans don't even think about Japanese equities because it was December 29th, 1989. I was eight right. years old. It was my yeah, it was childhood. that long ago, that's right. It was my childhood that witnessed a Japanese equity run. And my entire professional career, aside from a few beautiful years back at Wisdom Tree, Jeremy, when we had some fireworks in Japanese equities, by and large, it's being forgotten by asset allocators, by anybody outside of Japan. And you know what, truth be told, by Japanese as well. And this is the push that we're seeing. I mean, Jeremy mentioned the NISA program. That's like Visa, NISA. You know, what's our annual 401k contribution here with Jeremy? It's like 22 or 23,000? What, maybe not that high, but maybe it could be around that number. That maybe twenty. Let's rate. say it's twenty thousand. It's like twenty thousand or twenty-two thousand dollars. Well, Kushida came out. It, it was maybe five or six months ago, and said, "We have to shift the typical Japanese savings inside the four hundred one k. It's not a four hundred one k, but okay, right. just grant me this." away from cash and away from fixed income, essentially, you need to start buying some stocks. And when they did that, they, the, the back of the envelope math is it was about $2,700 that you could put in. Now, remember, we're putting in 20 or 22,000 here in the US per year. It was about 2,700. But opening up the door to more equity investment and tripling that quantity to 8,000 and something USD equivalent. This is the psychology change get you in get you thinking get it out back on your consciousness we had a consciousness at one time when our entire hollywood film studio decided to make every movie japan-centric back in yeah. the 80s 
Right. Yeah. When was the last time you've done anything like that? You know, I mean, what? Karate Kid? Black Rain. The only thi- What's that? Yeah. Black, Black Rain. Rain. That's right. Yeah. I don't even know Black Rain. I'm so out of touch with pop culture. I don't even know what Black awesome Rain is. Awesome movie, like. by the way. Michael Crichton book. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, I speak out of turn when, it, when, I, when I opine on, on pop culture as if I know anything beyond what my daughter tells me is cool these days. But, you know, that's been the situation. And when Jeremy points out the price to book thing, we call it the price to book thing. Jeremy, help me. What is the number of companies in Japan, like an MSCI Japan, that have a price to book under one? It's, you know, they're, they're, they're actually responding. Something. It used to be 50% of the, of some of our indexes. It's actually be, because they're, they're growing. Japan's now a top performer. It's actually falling to about 30% of our, our, our flagship index instead of 50% of the index, but it's still generally a cheap market and you see me them actually responding. And so I think that that's one of the benefits is companies are, I think it's a combination, not just of, hey, the, the Tokyo Stock Exchange is saying, get your act together. You see them responding to Buffett really demanding dividends and buybacks, and, and companies are performing well after they do that. So it, it's partly a culture shift, partly there's there's incentives for a number of ways around. There's also, I mean, I've got it. I, I was just there this month. Um, and so it's on my mind and, you know, I was in a coffee shop. I can't read anything. You know, it's like that. It's so difficult. Um, like, what's that? This is a help wanted sign. And I took, I took the Google translate to it to work as a barista in the center of Tokyo on a hot street with tons of people in a, in a coffee shop that is humming seven to $10. Okay, over here in Chicago, <laughs> you're looking at twenty or twenty-two dollars yeah. if you want to hire somebody in the Starbucks. Um, you know, maybe it's even more like down in Michigan Avenue, something like that. And what we've seen, we've seen this labor arbitrage open up when you look at the OECD wage data as well. This is something that Jeremy and I have crunched at some length. The OECD will give you Japanese wages because the Japanese have been so good at data collection because they've been developed for so long. When you need old data, Japan is a good country for it. I think I can get Japanese wages back to maybe even 1950 something, like 1955 or 1960. And you have in USD terms, averages now, and we could go all day about the difference between medians and averages. So give me an asterisk that it's averages. Cause here we've got some average people named Elon Musk. And average people <laughs> named Jeff Bezos, um, where it's at something like early 1970s relative wage gaps. It's priced on a wage basis, like the wages that you're currently paying, re- relative wages in the old Eastern Bloc nations. It's about the same wages in Japan, give or take, as a lot of the Eastern European countries at this juncture. So you've got a profit margin wow. set up. Yeah. And you also have a, at the risk of using marginal propensity to fill in the blank, marginal propensity to lay off your American workforce or your Japanese workforce. Well, who are you going to lay off if you're paying 30 or 35 cents on the dollar and you need to lay off 500 people? 
and you have a sizable Japanese operation and a sizable American or Canadian operation. Or well, I don't like know that. about Where you, Jeff, but I'm going to be communicate, commuting to Tokyo to get my Starbucks. Yeah, <laughs> get your Starbucks. <laughs> well, they'll get the if the uh, the coffee there is dirt cheap. It's like um, Spanish coffee prices. Wow, you know, is when it you really? Spain, you know, when you go to Spain and it's like yeah, yeah. wine. How many quarters yeah. do you have in your pocket here? Have some wine. It's like that. Yeah. Um, for for a lot of things on the on the day to day consumption level, not so much alcohol. I wasn't drinking much alcohol. <laughs> yeah. No, I really wasn't. I really wasn't. But uh, I digress. <laughs> Love it. That's so, amazing. So Japan. All right. Yeah. Well, I think we covered that nicely. Um, do we want to round out? Um, before we before we uh, begin to wrap this up with any other key ideas that you think are, are really not on the radar anywhere, but you feel um, you want to emphasize? Well, I, on your radar, I wanted to ask you if you could tell the story of India. Sure, Jeremy, you want to go ahead? Well, you know, I think the the big geopolitical question that's clearly not going away is, is, is you can't avoid the China-U.S. conflicts. And, you know, there's, I see the next five years, there's be, you talked about things that Japan's trying to submit their market, China's taking all sorts of actions to try to countermeasure the, the pressure that they've been under, but the underlying tension is there. They took some of their own self-inflicted wounds on cracking down on their tech companies. There's this real estate slowdown and really, you know, the governments are strapped. They don't have a lot of cash. And so you think about the real growth engines of the world. China was such a big growth engine for the world for so long. Now, demographically, India is obviously the only country that can rival them with a very young population. So it's got a setup that, that it's at a per capita income well below. Can it catch up with the rest of the world, um, it's it's and it's playing both sides of the geopolitical tensions beautifully, right? So it's buying Russian oil, but it's a strong U.S. ally, and yeah. so it's a very interesting centerpiece for everything happening, both in Asia, but also just demographically where growth around the world could come from. Now, it's priced in a way that it, people know India's got this great local economy growth engine. It's not a cheap market, so you got to be sensitive to valuation. I mean, we when we do an earnings weighted index and an ETF for India, it basically can get you multiples that look like a broad emerging market, but otherwise, you get you go towards some of the consumer companies. You're talking not cheap stocks. You know, these are not like your single digit Japan or your single digit you know some high EM commodity stories. These are premiums to you. You know on par with us tech right because they're growing and they're sort of some of the growth engines of right. but i i do think from a long-term basis i like india i like the allies you know of of the us in this regional dynamic my my friends at corbury research talk a lot about a theme being the allies uh japan's one of those allies india is one of those allies and i think they could they could benefit from rotation away from China towards that. And so I think that I mean, there's a lot of good stories behind it. And you guys get to pay a lot of attention to the BRICS summit last couple of weeks. See, I thought that that was, to me, I think it's a bigger deal than, uh, than my perception of the attention that media gave it. Um, 
India, and to some extent, Brazil was able to, they were, they were able to, I think India more than Brazil, because Brazil's out there on the other side of, physically on the other side of planet Earth. But India is able to play this card. Remember, help me, uh, two years ago, maybe, that weird, bizarre, hand-to-hand -hand combat battle that involved in small quantities of deaths with spiked baseball bats between the Indians and the Chinese. Um, and throwing guys off the cliff and you know, 10 guys here died and 10 guys there died. It's like, whoa, this was a little border skirmish. The India has a history with China. Um, right. And India is uncomfortable, very uncomfortable with the rise of China. And then in the genius of our world, the significance of the word brick, the acronym brick, is Jim O'Neill made it up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was at the turn of the century, Brazil, Russia, India, yeah. and China. And then it was BRICS and the band, you know, a few years ago, that's when they brought in South Africa. That's BRICS. It's like other than if Jim O'Neill was never born, I don't know what the acronym would be, but it's like cobble these these nations together and it's supposed to be the the, the response to US hegemony. But India's got a, a really intriguing role. As for, as for what Jeremy was pointing out, India, Japan, Australia, they they got to keep look at look at China from a from a, a jaundiced eye, um, and that's an intriguing position because India can maybe score concessions from from everyone in trade negotiations as everybody tries to to gather them in influence. So I thought that the, the BRICS summit was, was intriguing, especially because they're trying to bring in another four or five nations right. into that fold. I mean, Ethiopia, of course, being the most impoverished of those nations, but having the like, 20 or 30 years of 8% of GDP growth in that nation. But critically, the Saudis, trying to bring the Saudis into that fold and the question about trading outside of USD. That's always been the risk to dollar hegemony. So that's something to, to keep an eye on. So we've oftentimes said that India could be one of those things that may be your hedge. What if it's, if the US has a fall for, from grace, but also China has a fall from grace? There's no, there's no, nobody came down from the mountain and said at the middle of the century, it needs to be one of these two countries that's dominating the world. What if it's somebody else? And it kind of goes back to the Japanese allocations. What do people have in dedicated Indian equity? 1% or 2%? Maybe, Maybe yeah. the play there is your hedge against, I think, none of us really knowing what the year 2050 looks like, so play it accordingly. Nice. Interesting. I wanted to uh, just go back to, you know, we were talking about movies, Jeff, in the Japan era. Blade Runner. Yes was a big one, right? I mean, the world of Blade Runner was that the the entire, you know, the future belonged to Japan mm -hmm. with the, you know, the neon signs, the big, the gigantic, you know, television neons and the, the holographic women. And, you know, it was a beautiful, I mean, it was, I, I just remember just being an absolutely stunning movie, you know, as a child watching it, but, but it, it, it it's never left and it was always raining you know it was constantly raining in black in blade runner but it was the future right the future was japan because it was made in that era you Back know to the, the future you know, Ridley scott <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely future. right but but i wonder you know that that was the picture in the 80s 
mm-hmm. of what the what the world looks like you know 2050 or 2030 whatever it was mm-hmm. um but you know what 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 is art saying now about the future what is you know what what how is life going to imitate art well i mean you know some of the things in terms of soft cultural exports i mean this has been one of the things that we've been we talking about the united states have been very good at through the years from what you know the, the western movies although i guess they're spaghetti westerns maybe that's not the best example if they're spaghetti <laughs> westerns but there has always been hollywood um and then there's been recently dollywood or not dollywood bollywood dollywood bollywood dollywood's an amusement park um you know, and so then that would be Indian exporting uh, of soft well, power. And we've, we have K-pop go to Netflix. The, yeah, we have K-pop um, yep. from South Korea and you have J-pop from, from Japan. And, you know, when I was growing up, under what circumstances would I have been exposed to pop music from anywhere other than, for all intents and purposes, Great Britain, if it wasn't American or Canadian, because I had MTV and that's what I had. And unless it was a one-hit wonder like Nina with the 99 Luft balloons from Germany or something like that, <laughs> I had no exposure to German culture whatsoever. <laughs> Did I? Those and sprockets. so now you have with, you know, with media, you can get, gain some soft cultural power a little bit. I think some of these countries have figured, it, figured out the recipe. It's not all Los Angeles anymore on some of these things. So I don't know if I digressed from the subject, but I think that as the years go on, I think the, the image of the insular American unaware of foreign cultures may subside. We, had, we have data now coming in on airline transportation showing, showing that the Americans have a greater affinity for, uh, a greater affinity for, for traveling over to Europe on vacation. Um, right. That's relatively new, relatively new. And so you, and I think it's a matter of time before you see more far-flung flights being taken by Americans and will become more acclimated to some of these other cultures as, as time passes. And maybe that's the direction that things go. I just want to congratulate yeah. Jeff. You know, we, we had a bet beforehand that he couldn't, he couldn't say the words 99 love balloons. And, <laughs> you know, he managed to work that into the, the conversation. So, uh, and you know what else about 99, 99% of the viewers have never had, have no idea what that song <laughs> is either. So yeah. right over their heads. But oh, you reminded boy. me, you reminded me of the sprockets from uh, SNL, <laughs> you know, yes, Mike Myers in the SNL sketch. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I know. Yeah. Okay. So we had Nina and we had Mike Myers making fun of German people. Those are yeah. our two exposures in the eighties and nineties to German <laughs> culture inside the United States. And that's true. Um, by and large, that is essentially the the situation that I grew up in. That to your point, Jeff. I, if you go to Netflix, almost every like new, uh, so many of the new listings that are popping up on Netflix, you're looking for something new to watch. You know, it's 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 Indian, it's Korean, it's Japanese. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're making a lot more movies, or at least a lot more of their movies are making it over here. And you know Netflix, of course, seems to be like scurrying to to fill fill up the hopper with with as much content as possible. But but it's a sign of the times, though. I mean, it, it, it's it definitely speaks to what we've talked about in in the last hour and a half. So absolutely, gentlemen, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having us on. It was a lot of fun to be on here with you guys. Always a blast, absolutely. you thanks, guys. guys. Thanks again.
All right. Until next time.